Hello, deconstruction community. This is Speaking Up with Andrew Pledger, a show that gives a platform for people to share their stories of surviving toxic religious environments. As a trigger warning, a lot of topics on this show will revolve around religious trauma, mental health, and spiritual abuse. Hello, this is Speaking Up with Andrew Pledger, and I am super excited to be having on the show today, Nikki Pappas. Nikki is an emerging writer currently working on her first memoir, As Familiar as Family. She talks about how she was groomed into toxic religion and how she escaped. In 2020, she started the Broadening the Narrative podcast to talk about narrow narratives in evangelicalism. She experienced many kinds of abuse growing up and even spiritual abuse inside of her church. Today, we have Nikki Pappas. How are you doing? I'm so great. I'm so excited to be here and to be talking with you. Thank oh, you. Of course. I'm so excited to have you on and really like, I just love podcasting because of all the different people I get to meet and all the conversations um, that I get to have and really like a lot of things that I get to learn from mm -hmm. other people. And so, you know, as we're jumping into the show today, usually the first question I have is what was your childhood like for you? Yeah. Okay. So I mentioned this before we started recording, but I listened to your episode on the divinely modern podcast with Haley, the scientist, and I could identify with pieces of your story. And so I think you know, I grew up in a Southern Baptist church and the rapture was a very big thing. So you talked about the rapture and your experience with that. And I remember that being the first time I heard that preached. And then we did the left behind series in youth group. And I remember coming home one day and no one being there. And I was convinced like I've been left behind and just how terrifying that is. So I had all this anxiety and I point to that story as an example, but it really characterizes, like there's a reason that hit me so deeply and why the thought of I'm going to be the one left behind. And I just had all these questions about like assurance of salvation, quote unquote, and like, am I saved? Am I not saved? And that uncertainty. And then you know, my church actually growing up, they told me I was a sinner, but you know, they didn't really hammer what I ended up, you know, I won't jump too far ahead, but total depravity wasn't something I encountered until I was 19, I think is when I first heard that, but you know, I was taught I was a sinner and you know, when you're little, you're like, how much bad did I do? Right. Like, and then to examine like, was I the one actually doing the bad things? And no, like there was so much abuse. Um, so trigger warning here, a lot of sexual abuse in my childhood. And so at the hands of family members and my grandma would always say, and she's 93 now, and she will still say this, like Nikki has the men of the family wrapped around her finger. If she says jump, they ask how high. And it took me being an adult and being spiritually abused at a church and then going to therapy and doing all this work for me to realize, oh, these were grooming behaviors when I was younger to look like I was this favored 
child, favored grandchild, um, you know, and you, you mentioned that I'm writing a memoir. So I'll go ahead and tell this story. And I have written it in my memoir that my grandfather, he gave me a hundred dollars. He bought me a puppy. He had promised me my first car when I could drive. Right. He was also sexually abusing me. Right. And no one knew. And so that, that story, I kind of point to my first time that I can remember feeling like I don't have autonomy, that I don't have agency over my body and over what happens to me. And this is someone who loves me, but they're hurting me. So, you know, when you talked about this in your episode with Haley, the um, spanking that that spanking is like, I'm hurting you because I love you. Right. And so then it's like mm-hmm. when sexual abuse is being done by someone who loves you, loved me, um, someone who in all the times before I can remember it happening, these public outings where we would go out to eat and we would do all these fun things. And so then it's like, oh, this person was just buying my loyalty in a way and my silence. Mm-hmm. And so being able to then see how I experienced abuse as love. And that is where my title for my memoir comes from as familiar as family was realizing, oh, all these things that happened in my family, they then happened in a church context. As I got older, it just looked a little different because it had the Christian veneer on it, but at the root, it was the same kind of behaviors and it felt so familiar to me. So I just sort of nestled right into it. So yeah, I mean, there's, there's more with my childhood. I don't know if there's anything more specific you wanted to talk about with that. Um, yeah. Yeah. I'm so sorry that that happened to you. Like, Mm -hmm. I can't imagine all the trauma around, like, it just, it makes me feel so sick to think about, you know, an adult in your life that you are supposed Mm -hmm. to have so much trust around to be so abusive and so harmful Mm -hmm. and you know I guess maybe a few questions or one of the questions I had is that um talking about different grooming behaviors and like it sounds like people love bombed you kind of in a way like they Mm -hmm. showered you with so many gifts and so many things so that you would feel bad if you spoke Mm -hmm. up against them like oh well I gave you all of these things like how dare you be ungrateful and accuse me or say this? Um, So what other tactics did they use to groom you? Yeah. Okay. So with my grandfather, it was the, the giving of gifts was the biggest thing. And I think what was maybe along the lines uh, before I answer like the question you've asked, but you know, I was thinking too, when Okay. So I spoke with the founders of the organization into account and they talked about how, uh, like dealing with sexual abuse in the church, that they have these three steps and one is to, and I wrote these down, um, authority. You want to take away the authority from the person who is causing harm. Then you want to limit their access to the target population. And then the third thing is you want to lower their regard in the community. And they were saying that oftentimes they get these attacks on them of you're ruining my life or this person's life. And they were like, no, like you can still live a very good life and not harm people. Right. Um, And so I just saw in my family that my grandfather was so revered 
in our family. He was a hero to everyone. And he was a hero to his country because he fought in a war and lost his leg in the war kind of thing. Right. And so seeing this person who was harming me be revered as a hero to his country, to his family for how hard he worked. You know, he was the father of eight children, my dad being one of them. He, um, you know, he, yeah, he worked hard and he was just like the preacher at church would tell these stories and, you know, we'd be laughing at how funny this man was. And so I think just, I knew at an early age, no one will believe me. Like I just knew that. And so, and there wasn't really an environment nurtured where I would feel safe and comfortable saying he had harmed me. There was no one I could go to. And so even when I grew up and I did tell my mom about what had happened, she took it really hard and it became me comforting her. Right. Um, And yeah. And so just wrestling with that and with her, like, why didn't you tell me I would have torn this family apart to protect you? It's like one that shifts this blame onto me, a child Mm -hmm. for not telling instead of self-examining, huh, what could I have done differently to create an environment where my daughter would have felt comfortable telling me? Right. So, yeah. Um, but so with my grandfather, it was the giving of gifts was the big thing. And then who he was in our family and in the community. Um, and then, you know, a little side story that I think is important as well is that my dad, who I call my dad, isn't my biological father. I don't know my biological father. I've never met him. And so it's interesting when I hear, like I was a baby when he and my mom, uh, when my the man I call my dad and my mom got together and I've heard that he told people I've met a girl. I love her and I'm going to marry her mom. Mm. That just doesn't sit great. No. Right. Um, and yes. And like my grandma was saying on the outside, it looked like I have all these men wrapped around my finger. They jump. I, you know, I I say jump, they ask how high kind of thing, right? Like that's Mm -hmm. what it looks like. But under the surface, it really came down to, I only, they only praised me or they only paid attention to me if they're getting what they want from me, right? Mm -hmm. Whatever, whatever that thing is. And so, yeah. And, and as I grew up, like I said, it felt very familiar and the church I ended up at the love bombing. I can now see that like I'm an extrovert and the pastor was an introvert and he would stand up there on Sunday mornings and he would praise the extroverts from the stage. He would say like, you know, I'm so grateful for y'all because I hate small talk and y'all know how how to go out and make people feel, will feel welcome. And I just saw that now I can see that as like this love bombing, this, see, you're valuable to me for this reason. And that praise early Mm -hmm. on, it didn't continue, you know, but early on that being something that I can now see, oh, he saw this in me and he quote valued it in me, but it was only Mm -hmm. because it served him in some way. So he didn't have to make the awkward small talk and Yeah. And then I thought, cause he, you know, he said, Oh, I want to get deep with people. And I thought about it now, like after leaving the church and it's like, 
it was rare to see him getting deep with someone and the rest of us who, you know, it wasn't because the rest of us only knew how to make small talk and we weren't capable of going deep, you know, it's like, there was something more there, but yeah, the thing that the pastor praised me for my extrovertedness was the thing I started to lose the longer I was in that environment, this bubbliness, this connecting with people. I just got more and more disconnected from myself. And you even talked about like disassociation in your Mm -hmm. conversation with Haley. And that is like, I have so many holes in my childhood. Yeah. And really like the 10 years I was at the church as an adult, there are blurs to that because yeah, just so much of it was me needing to just survive, just, just plow through it. You know, as a child, it was the, the sexual abuse and trauma, the domestic violence that I witnessed, all these things happening. Then as an adult, like I said, it was different. You know, I feel like I really plugged into that church because I was like, well, the men here don't sexually assault me, (laughs) you know? And it's like, if it sounds like the bar is low, that's because the bar was quite low for me. Um, These people weren't physically harming me. And so it just, it took time to see the spiritual abuse happening, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, psychological abuse and manipulation happening in that context and then to, to get out of it. Yes. And so, you know, if you could, what were specific instances of spiritual abuse or just negative experiences in general at this church? Mm. Yeah. So for context, the church was a church plant and it was part of the Southern Baptist convention and the South Carolina Baptist association, as well as the Acts 29 network. And if you're not familiar with Acts 29 network, you are blessed. No, but, um, if anyone's heard of Mark Driscoll, like Mark Driscoll is the pastor who started. Okay. Yeah. So he started the Acts 29 network and he was kicked out of the network Right. And then he was replaced with Matt Chandler. If people are familiar with him, uh, the village church, I think is his church. And so it really, you know, Mark Driscoll, there was all this stuff about his bullying and dominating as an elder at the church he was part of, which was Mars Hill church. It became this big thing in Seattle, their music, like being so popular, all these things. Right. So the pastor at this church that I was part of here in South Carolina planted this church with the Acts 29 network. And I've heard it said somewhere, I wish I could remember, it's like you could take Mark Driscoll out of Acts 29, but his DNA is still in it. Oh no! And so it's this idea, I think of if you were attracted to that type of leadership that Mark Driscoll displayed, then you likely have some narcissistic traits and tendencies because- you look at him and don't see anything wrong with what he's doing and how he's doing it. And so from my experience, a lot of the pastors that I knew within the network or met within the network were kind of drawn to this like macho and tell it like it is and dominate people. And I can do this and I'm the only one man enough, you know, all these things. Right. And so my pastor or the person who had the title of pastor who planted the church I was a part of, again, he didn't come with all that bravado, but there was still like this arrogance and certainty in how he presented himself. So he started this church after having been a youth pastor. Uh, He then planted his own church. And I 
I just find it very interesting. He planted a church near a university and it's near Winthrop University, which is a predominantly school with, a, you know, a higher population of women students. But he planted this church for the express purpose. The mission was to reach 18 to 25 year old men for God's glory, to be able to raise them up as leaders, to lead their families, to lead the nation. Right. And it's like, okay, I don't fit in that demographic. I'm in the age range, but I'm not an 18, 25 year old man. Right. But somehow I'm buying all into the vision to reach 18 to 25 year old men but then we're near this campus of mostly women and it's a liberal arts school so it's not like you've got a lot of fundamentalist Mm -hmm. conservative you know it's like that we never became that church because we weren't in a place where you could really bring that demographic to your to your church but you know that's some of the background of how the church got started and then I was there for 10 years faithfully serving. And I say I was directly spiritually abused there in July, 2018, but I also want to say the whole system and institution is abusive, right? So I was directly Mm -hmm. spiritually abused, but it's also a spiritually abusive system. And so I want to give credit to KJ Ramsey. I heard her on this podcast, the church hurts podcast, And she's talking about naming spiritual abuse. And so she said, I don't think these church leaders set out to spiritually abuse people, but when we get so focused on rushing and hurrying and locked into these rhythms of like hustling, then we Mm -hmm. can't practice presence with people to be known by them and to know them. And then she said, you know, any institution or any system where you can't have that presence together is going to create an an environment where abuse can happen. And so it was an abusive system in the sense of all that was demanded of us, you know, serve, 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 Mm -hmm. volunteer, volunteer, volunteer. You're exhausted, but show up with a smile on your face and let's reach the city. Right. So there was that exhaustive aspect And there was the high control aspect of you have one leader now, granted he was, so he was, he had the title of lead elder. There were other elders, but when you designate one person gets to have the title of lead elder and really every decision comes down to if they want to do it or not, that's a high control environment. They don't have Mm -hmm. anyone who can really check them, you know? So then there's that aspect that made it abusive. And actually my grandma, when I started at the church, she was worried it was a cult, you know, based on the things I was saying and the, um, I had gone to the membership classes and all this stuff. And I'm like, I guess you don't live to be almost a century and not learn a thing or two about cults. Yeah. Mm, Like maybe grandma was onto something. Right. But at the time I was 19, I have to give myself so much grace. I'm like, I was Mm -hmm. young and impressionable. So that's another thing that I want to say is like a pro tip for pastors who do want to really grow this, grow a church is like, you find these young, malleable people who want to please God and who believe part of pleasing God means pleasing their pastor. And then you teach them all of your ideology and they're going to go out and they're going to make disciples in your image for you. And that's what I did. Like I got his ideology, his theology about women, about I mean, stuff about reproduction, all these things that I believe that I got from this pastor within a complementarian mm-hmm. context. 
you know, for anyone unfamiliar, you know, complementarians will say women and men and, you know, and again, it's very binary. There's not this, like it doesn't include all people and it makes it to where there's only cisgender heterosexual men and cisgender heterosexual women, (laughs) which excludes so many people, which, you know, I heard one person, Megan Wooding said, you know, there's not really a place for people who aren't cisgender heterosexual men and women in this theology, but that's okay because it's a terrible theology, you know, like (laughs) we don't need to create more space within the theology. We need to throw the theology out. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, but yes. So within this construct and this theology, it's like men and women are equal in dignity, value, and worth. We just have different roles, you know, and I ate that up and I believed that. And I thought if I just submit more, if I just this or that more. And so, yeah, I taught people modesty, so much of the purity Mm, culture stuff. Like, yeah. And I know for me, I've, I've now gotten to a point where I can see that not to make an excuse for the theology mm-hmm. and for perpetuating it, but I was sexually abused as a child. And here purity culture is teaching me, well, if you just dress this way and do these things, it protects oh, you. No. Now we know it's not true. We know it's a lie, but to a 19 year old hearing this, who had experienced so much sexual violence and, you know, in yeah. high school, I was raped, you know, it's like yeah. all that violence and And purity culture is also teaching you that if something happens to you, it was your fault if you're a woman, right? Like, which is not true. tragic, so sad. Yeah. And so I'm hearing this and I'm hearing, oh, there's a way I can protect myself. And so it was misguided, but I thought, well, here's how I can help other women and girls protect themselves. So it became like judging people, oh, dress this way. Don't do that. Submit more, whatever the thing is to protect yourself. And so misguided not true. I can now see all the lies of it, but at the time it offered me something, you know? And so now I can look back and I can be like, no, it's trash, throw it all out. But you know, at the time I have, I was 19 again, I keep going back to that. I was so young, so young. So I have a lot of, a lot more compassion for myself. And even for people younger than me who are still in it, It's like when you think you found a place of belonging and acceptance, and, you know, we can talk more about like why it was my family, why it became my family too. Um, And I think, you know, part of that is because I was talking about high control, but also when you're being told we're a family, we're a family, the pastor's up there drilling that into you. And then you're being told do life with one another, you know? And so I didn't have any other friends outside of the church, really, because how can you cultivate deep, meaningful relationships with anyone else if you're at church all the time or having people in your home for a small group once a week at least, and then you're supposed to be inviting these people to go grocery shopping with you so you can do life together. And it's like, these are the people who become everything to you. So then a tactic within that is that you get afraid once for me, once I kind of started realizing and waking up to what was happening, it's like, oh, but they're all I have. There's isolation that will come if I leave, you know? So yeah. Um, and then I would say that was kind of all the, the systemic abuse happening, Mm -hmm. but then on a more direct level, what happened was I sat down with the pastor who I'd known at that point for 10 years, he had done my wedding and premarital counseling, all these things. Right. I thought 
I have this intimate, safe relationship with this person, the kind where you know that their daughter's allergic to sweet potatoes. So when you bring them dinner, don't take that, right? Like that kind of relationship where you know those sort of intimate things. And so at the church, they had done a deacon nomination. And I think that the pastor thought that they were a lot more progressive in a way because they allowed women to be deacons, you know, because like my Southern Baptist church growing up didn't, we didn't have women deacons. And so I think that he thought, well, we are quite, you know, he wouldn't have said progressive, like he would not have Mm -hmm. wanted that word to describe his church. But I'm sure he thought like, well, you know, we at least allow women to be deacons, but it's like when you boil it down, like deacon just means servant. So sure, you allow women to, (laughs) you know, it's one who serves, right? And so, so yeah, I guess that's not that much of a stretch, but yeah, so they had a set of deacons. Two of them were women. Okay. Well, then they wanted some, to add some new deacons. So I don't know if the rest of the church just felt like, well, two's enough. We don't need to add more women, but there were no women in the top five deacon nominations, even though I could look around and I could see all the women who were doing the work of a deacon, they were serving the church and the people of the church in these meaningful ways. But then I was like, wow, there's a problem here. If people aren't, if, if the first people coming to our minds aren't women, we're still thinking, cause the pastor had preached a sermon. He said, women are allowed to be deacons and just kind of moved on. He didn't say we need their voices at the table. Mm-hmm. We need them helping the church make decisions, you know? And I want to say that the two women who were deacons, one was a single woman and one was an older woman who was an empty nester. Then there was like a quarter of the church where people like me, young moms with kids in the home. And we were doing a lot of that work. You know, one of the big things was us showing up to clean the church, to help the pastor be able to focus on his like duties as a pastor and the worship leader to be able to lead worship and not have to clean the church. We were cleaning the church for free. And so, yeah, but we weren't considered at least not at the same rate as the men and as the dads with young kids in their house, you know? So it's like, why is it any different? Why, why is it okay for him to be taken away from his family to do things, but not okay to nominate his wife for her to be taken away from the family for these meetings and things. Right. So anyways, um, sat down with the pastor and got to talk with him. And so my husband, Stephen told him, the fact that more that, that women weren't in the top five is indicative of a church culture that doesn't value women. And the pastor responded, well, it could be an indication of that. And he was like, no, it is. And proceeded to lay out these examples of sexism in the church. As he did that, the pastor is just dismissing, diminishing. Mm. One of them was a husband who on Facebook publicly blasted his wife saying my wife made some blatantly ignorant comments about guns today lucky for her she has a loving husband to correct her so we knew we knew what that meant that meant get back in line stop speaking out in a way that doesn't line up with what i say right or i will publicly humiliate you Mm, how did the pastor respond you know he was only joking right (laughs) Like, dude, it's not funny. Like this, what? So hearing him say that, I was like, wow, wow. So then I decided, well, 
and I'm super hopeful. I see the best in people for better or worse. And so I thought he just doesn't know what he doesn't know. But as soon as I enlighten him, (laughs) he's going to be so appreciative. And so I was like, well, let's talk about when you said this thing, you know, so there had been a, an athlete. I won't like go into too much more than that who had said it was funny to hear a female reporter talking about routes. And so then some sponsors were pulled from him and all these things happened. And so then there ended up being this whole conversation with the pastor and the pastor's wife about what happened before I'm sitting down with him to have this conversation about women in the church. And he just diminished what the athlete had said and was just like he's not sexist like he's immature he's young but he's not sexist right and someone else present said something like I just don't even understand why women want to report on said sport why can't they report on volleyball or some other like woman's sport right so that was the conversation that happened so I decided well let's talk about this example that included you and what you said right First, he said, I don't even know what you're talking about. I don't even remember what you're talking about. I was like, oh, well, let me, let me remind you. Oh no! So I tell him the whole thing and he's just looking at me. Right. And so then I said, well, you know, your seminary professor that you quote, you said that he told y'all what you say you believe plus what you do shows what you actually believe. And so I asked him like, what do you believe about women? What would you say you believe about women? And he just looked right at me and he said, no, you are not going to pigeonhole me and put me in a box and label me a sexist. I'm not answering your questions. And that's when it hit me. Like he is threatened by me because I'm asking questions. He feels like it's a challenge to his authority Mm -hmm. and he's ascribing this malicious motive to me as if I want to pigeonhole him, put him in a box, label him a sexist, rather than seeing me as someone who cares about him, who just maybe wants to come alongside him. Hey, let me help you see some things that you maybe don't understand. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's what you expect of me with you. You want me to trust you (laughs) to, to, yeah. And so I thought we have this mutual understanding, this equal friendship. And in that instant, I knew we don't. So I start hyperventilating and crying and saying like, you know me. And he's like, and you know me, right? Still wouldn't answer the question. I calmed down and I was just, you know, praying like, Lord, give me clarity. Lord, give me clarity. Um, And I I say that because that's how I was back then. Like Mm -hmm. prayer is hard for me now, um, to be honest. But then I was just praying like, Lord, give me clarity. And so then I looked at him and I said, well, I don't want you to think that's what I'm doing. So I'll ask the questions, but you don't have to answer them. So I asked the questions. What do you believe about women? What do you believe you can learn from women? What women are you learning from all these questions? Right. And he still wouldn't answer. Like he just he wouldn't answer. So then we talked about some different things. He never really, he said, I'm sorry, I made you cry, but there was no digging, no curiosity, no, how Mm -hmm. do we fix this? Right. It took six months, Andrew, six months before we sat down again. I, and it wasn't because I was waited six months. I was asking, can we sit down again? And I wanted the another one of the pastors to be present in our conversation Mm -hmm. and a lot happened during that time, but I'll fast forward and say six months later, we sit down a lot had happened in my own life, my own journey. And 
I knew what I deserved and what I didn't deserve in treatment from a pastor. Mm -hmm. And so we sat down together again, ever the hopeful person. I thought he just doesn't understand how this has affected me. Well, we're going to talk it out. We're going to repair it. I was ready to leave if we needed to, but it was literally like, I didn't think we'd need to. So we're sitting there and I ask him, do you think you did anything wrong at our, at our last meeting? And he's like, I, I don't know what you're talking about. Like, so I said, well, you know, leading up to be hyperventilating and crying, would you have done anything differently? And he was like, well, I, I never want anyone to cry. I was like, oh, okay. So let me just rehash since you weren't there, like to the other pastor, let me just say what happened and then we can take it from there. So I rehashed the whole thing and he looks at me and he goes, well, you've really backed me into a corner again, because now if I remember it differently. You either want me to apologize for something I didn't do, or if I'm defensive, or if I try to defend myself, I'm being defensive and that's not fair to me. And that was his response, right? Not, oh my goodness, I had no idea it came across that way. Like, let's talk through this. Let's make this work. Let's repair this. No. And he went on to say, you know what, Nikki, I think you just really, really don't like me. And that's why this is happening. He said, I do think you were trying to say that I was sexist and the way we do things at the church that I've named entrenched church, mm-hmm. uh, that the way we do things there is sexist. But, and he says, I am not a sexist. And then he says, I think you started hyperventilating and crying because I caught you trying to do just that, like trying to label me a sexist. <laughs> that was why I would cried, Right. Well. And then the real kicker was when he said like, you know, and he was like coming for me hard, but then he started to soften and he got a little softer and a little softer. And he said, you know, I'm just as nervous around you as you are around me. And just like that, right. He becomes the victim. The (laughs) the power dynamic is not even talked about the fact that you're the one who has the power to excommunicate me. Why are you fearful about me? Like Mm -hmm. I I'm not going to do anything to you. And if I wanted to back you into a corner again, I wouldn't have waited six months. You know, if this were about backing you to a corner and I wouldn't be doing it privately in my home, you know? So anyways, again, I start to hyperventilate. I we're at our house. I run into this same closet and Steven comes in after me, my husband. And he, I looked at him. I was like, you see what's happening. Right. And he was like, yeah. And I was like, I mean, like we, we've, he, or he said, I, this, I don't want this to be how it ends. And I said, well, this is how it's ending. And I just had that resolve to Mm -hmm. no more. Like I will not accept this treatment. And so he asked like, do you even want to go back out there? And I was like, oh yes, because I'm this close, right. To getting out of there. So we go sit back down. The pastor decides he wants to go first and He says, like, you know, I don't think either of us sinned. I mean, it was, I'm sorry, it was never a question of if I sinned, right? But he's like, I don't think either of us sinned. And, you know, we can still break bread together and we can still worship alongside one another. And in my head, I'm like, why would you think I want to do that? Why would I want (laughs) to break bread with you? Why would I want to worship alongside you when you clearly think the worst of me Mm -hmm. and your paranoia is out of this? world, you know? And then the other pastor says, you know, Nikki, like, I know this is hard, but you're being really brave. And I think this is good. And that was, 
that was something that I sat with later. And I just started to examine the absurdity of bravery being a prerequisite to talking with your pastor, right? (laughs) Yes, I was brave, but I should not have had to be brave. People should not have to be brave to talk to their pastors. That Mm -hmm. is a red flag right there. If, If you're needing bravery, right? And to take it a step further, I would much prefer this other pastor hold the lead pastor accountable Mm -hmm. rather than commend me for my courage, right? Like, can we have some pastoral accountability rather than commending a harmed church member for their courage? But at the time, I didn't have time to think through all that. I just said, well, it might've been good for y'all, but it's been pretty bad for me. And our time at the church is over. And I just was like, (laughs) and I looked right at the pastor because that was something else, you know, when we're talking about a systemic issue and the culture of a church for 10 years, I'd been there for 10 years. I'd watched people come and go and come and go. And it just felt like this revolving door. And we never talked about the people who left. It was just kind of like, we just forgot they ever existed. And my husband would ask, why did so-and-so leave? Cause these were important people to the church. They were for a lot of reasons, like because of who they were, like just as people, like loving those people, but also the positions they held in the church. And then they're just gone and we just never talk about them again. And so Stephen was like, why did so-and-so leave? And he would be told, oh, it's being handled. And so at the time we thought, oh, we're so lucky to be part of a church that's not gossiping. We didn't Mm -hmm. realize this is a culture of secrecy, right? So all these people would leave and the pastor would try to act like, the church had done nothing wrong. So I looked right at him and I wanted to make sure he knew this and the other pastor who was present. And I said, you broke trust with me and you've done little to nothing to acknowledge and repair that trust. So our time at the church is over, right? Like I can no longer submit to your leadership because that was a hallmark of the church, right? Submit to your leaders, Mm -hmm. be a joy to lead, submit to your leaders. And I was like, I don't trust you. So I'm not submitting to you. And I just told him that. And then I was done, you know, Uh, I walked out of the room. Well, I did also say, you need to figure out what's going on at the church. or You're going to keep hemorrhaging members. Mm -hmm. And I said hemorrhaging, but at the time it was kind of like just this trickle after we left. So many more people left, not because of us, they had their own stories and their own reasons and not always for this, a similar thing, but yeah, I called it hemorrhaging then, but it became hemorrhaging after we left. And so walking away from that though. Yes, in some ways it did result in some isolation, but I just kept thinking I'd rather be alone than with people who think that God designed for me as a woman to be second class in some way Mm -hmm. or that it's okay for men to rule over me, you know? So I don't know if I answered your question, but that was kind of the, the big story of the direct spiritual abuse that happened. Oh, yes, that definitely did. And, you know, it's interesting because I attended an SBC church when I first went to college. Growing up, you know, I was raised in the IFB, which is Independent Fundamental Baptist. And when I went to college, I knew that I would never, ever want to go to an IFB church again. Mm -hmm. And so at Bob Jones University, it's so dumb, but they have a list of churches they approve of. And most of them are very conservative Christian colleges. Like it's a mix of IFB, SBC, um, some Presbyterian and just conservative churches in general. And, you know, I always felt bad 
for women at Bob Jones and these churches because mm -hmm. there would be sermons. I remember one sermon at Bob Jones where this speaker was talking about, hey, he's like, you know, many women are equal. And he went on with a complementarian um, mm -hmm. idea. And he talked about how many women were equal. And then he said a phrase that completely contradicted that men and women were equal, but he said mm -hmm. they still are. And so I'm there sitting with my other girlfriends and I'm like, uh, like, are y'all okay with this? And like a lot of people were laughing during the sermon because this guy would say men and women are equal, but the woman always has to listen to the man, the man makes decisions. So it's like, no. And I think what has caused so much church abuse in America and around the world is that we have this patriarchal system with, like you were saying, there's just one leader at the top and who's above him. I mean, supposedly God, but I'm sorry, but God doesn't seem to be doing much about that. So, and you know, it's, it, it would be great to think that, you know, God is helping lead these leaders and help them do the right thing and that they're fine, but there's so much abuse that has happened in the church and you know i'm not sure if you've heard of preacher boys podcast but they are a wonderful podcast that specifically they cover church abuse in ifb churches and it's really it's really rampant in america and it's always these very patriarchal type systems where the men are not held accountable yeah i mean and from your situation from this story it sounds like that this man did not want to admit of any kind of wrongdoing i mean he could have said oh well i'm sorry i came across that way i didn't mean to like he was so full of pride he just didn't mm -hmm. want to admit to doing anything wrong whatsoever yeah. and that is so dangerous when we mm -hmm. have these systems because you know sadly with your grandpa you felt like you couldn't call him out because he mm -hmm. was so respected. Everyone loved him and men were put on a pedestal really in these environments, they were deified. And a lot of spiritual abuse that goes on in these churches as that I've seen so many spiritual leaders use like comparing men or church leaders to being chosen by God. Mm -hmm. No. So like, if you're questioning them, you're questioning God himself. That's so right. stay in line and stay in your place. And you know, when there's no accountability, abuse thrives. And I think a lot of abusers, sadly, go to these environments, because they know mm -hmm. that they aren't going to be held accountable. And if they are going to be held accountable, it's going to take a long time. Mm -hmm. um, because there is so much secrecy in these churches and i relate to what you were saying about people just leaving and no one talking mm -hmm. about it really about why and fixing the system because the church i grew up in was an ifb church and you know like so many people left in droves and no one talked about it and you know the pastor I'm sure embarrassed by his low numbers of people would just, you know, talk in the pulpit about how, oh, people, they're, they're leaving these churches and they're going to these super liberal and bad progressive churches. It's like mm -hmm. the devil is leading them away. And mm -hmm. I see so many people really make the devil, the idea of the devil, the scapegoat to mm -hmm. not be held accountable. Like, oh, it's That's the right. devil. Mm -hmm. And so they don't have to be held accountable for anything that they've done. 
And Mm -hmm. it always irks me when I hear someone blame something we cannot prove whatsoever. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like this little ghost in the corner. I'm like, no, Mm -hmm. don't even do that. (laughs) Like, yeah. (laughs) And the thing it bothers me a lot too is because a lot of these conservative churches believe and promote free will. And so, you know, everyone has a choice. So it's like, okay, it's like, if everyone has a choice, why are you blaming this decision on the devil? Like, why are you blaming these instances on the devil when, Mm. you know, and I get so annoyed when, you know, people or church members can gaslight victims who have been abused in these churches and be like, oh, well, nobody's perfect. Nobody, like everybody makes mistakes. And it's Mm -hmm. like, you know, abuse is intentional. And it is not a mistake. And, you know, and I realized earlier what you were saying about, you know, some pastors don't realize they're being spiritually abusive. And I think the sad thing is, and I talked with a friend recently who's a missionary kid. Mm. And, you know, she attended churches, you know, across the world. And so she told me, she's like, Andrew, she's like, I don't even recognize these fundamentalist churches at all. Like, this is so different from the Christianity of what I've thought of it at all. Like, this is so toxic. This is so harmful. Mm-hmm. It's so fear, shame, and guilt, so much of mm-hmm. that. And mm-hmm. I think really it's because it's so normalized. Spiritual right. abuse and toxic teachings, toxic theology is so normalized. And I think really we've all been conditioned and indoctrinated to accept it. Mm-hmm. And to just go with the flow, to stay in line. And that's why it's kept going. Yeah. And I think the sad thing is, like, the preachers who go to these super conservative, fundy colleges are really taught these different tactics. Mm-hmm. And they're, like, they're copying different behaviors that they've learned. And mm-hmm. I even, you know, I have an uncle who went to Hiles Anderson College um, in Chicago. And, like, it it's a really fundamentalist college. It was big in the eighties and he definitely saw um, issues with that college because I remember him saying that they were taught to emote how to emotionally manipulate people. Wow. In classes. And he remembers, he said, yeah, he's like, there are definitely issues I have with that college. He's like, that is not right to be taught and use tactics to emotionally manipulate people. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when I heard that, I'm like, oh my gosh, like, you know, I don't know how many colleges it's happening at, but I am sure it is going Mm -hmm. on still today at these super um, fundamentalist conservative colleges where these preachers are being taught to emotionally manipulate people and get them Mm -hmm. dependent on them. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, I'm just curious, like, what does your, what is your beliefs look like now like what did you deconstruct and you know i think you said like basically the final straw for you was after that meeting Mm -hmm. it sounds like you were just done but along up to that point what toxic theology is how you've been deconstructing yeah well yeah before i get to that i'll say that yes i thought love was my primary motivation for Mm -hmm. serving the church when i was there and while i do think it was It was a factor, shame, fear, and guilt, as you named, were also playing Mm -hmm. into it. And kind of what I've come up against in leaving, there was, uh, like I said, more people left after we did. 
and someone who still went to the church there shared this meme where it showed a full church. And it was like, when the pastor tickles your ears, you know, and then a empty church. It's like when the pastor preaches the truth. So this narrative was being spun that people are leaving because we were becoming, um, you know, social justice warriors. We were egalitarian. We were, you know, affirming of LGBTQ plus community. Now, like all these things were being said for it's, you know, we're leaving because we can't handle the truth. The pastor is saying like, that was the thing. Right. Mm -hmm. And then it became this idea of you're ruining the reputation of the church or of the pastor. And like, I just want to say like naming the abuse that happened isn't damaging the reputation. It was the abuse that damaged the reputation. Right. So like mm-hmm. when we you know talk about victim blaming and all those things. And so it's like, no, the abuse is what did it, you know, not me speaking about the abuse. And so, yeah, like I would say that along my journey, there's been this mischaracterization of me as I'm deconstructing and I can tell like whenever I see something that someone has posted, whether it's someone I know or someone just on the internet, I can tell if it's a pastor who is just talking about those of us who are deconstructing versus Mm -hmm. someone who's talking to us, right? Like, have you, have you sat with us? Have you listened to our stories, you know? And so, yes, I ended up once I left the church It took me about a year. Well, we left in January, 2019. In December, 2019, I wrote a blog post, why I'm not in church anymore. And I talked about, here are the claims I'm hearing, you know, that we had differences in theology. And I was like, that's not why we left the church. Now, I'm not saying that that's not a reason to leave the church. Like it is Mm -hmm. a very valid reason to leave the church. It's just not the reason we left, you know? And, um, and so, yes, like, the people who looked at me, they could see my deconstruction journey. And I had started my broadening the narrative Instagram account. So anyone who followed that could see the changes I was going through. So they were pointing to that as, oh, that's why they left again. Then you can evade the accountability of, Mm -hmm. you know, no, it was because of this thing that happened. So I shared very publicly on my blog. I did this post and I was like, we left because the pastor broke trust with me in these ways. And can't be held accountable. And then I said, now all the, the, a lot of these things have become true of me, right? Like I had become egalitarian. I had become LGBTQ plus affirming. I'd become, Mm -hmm. you know, um, whatever thing they want to put in there, like, you know, to go back to what you're saying about the patriarchal systems, I'm actually reading God is a black woman by Dr. Christina Cleveland Mm -hmm. and going through her e-course and who, yes, she talks about white male God and how white male God sets up this capitalism and all these systems that we see these churches functioning under white male God's authority. And it's all about getting bodies and money, you know, get people Mm -hmm. into the church and get their money, you know? But anyways, yeah, so like getting out of all that, my journey really did start with seeing how, okay, I need to heal myself and to see that like, I want my healing and wholeness and flourishing as much as I want the healing, wholeness and flourishing of the people who harm me, but those won't come at the expense of my own healing and wholeness. I've got to prioritize my own. So I got into therapy, Mm -hmm. right? Um, but yeah, okay. I want to point to one of the biggest things. I actually listened to this while I was still at the church, uh, the almost heretical podcast. Um, well, okay. Sorry. Let me back up. Let me go all the way back uh, to yeah. May, 2017. Okay. So we didn't leave the church until January, 2019, but I can look at May, 2017 as kind of a, a little 
pinpoint. I got involved with Be the Bridge, which is a Christian organization working with racial justice. And so that was my first point was getting involved with seeing how race in the country, uh, in the United States in particular, how that shaped so much of my experience. And once I understood that and I started listening to Black women specifically, that opened the door to seeing like the intersectionality that they were facing as women who were Black, you know, like that intersectionality there. And so from there, it did feel like it was just kind of this um, pulling the string, you know, how people talk about you pull Mm -hmm. one thread and then the whole blanket unravels, you know. So it went like, you know, race to gender to um, sexuality and stuff about the Bible. Like, what is the Bible? Uh, You know, it was just kind of all these things that and I'm the kind of person like uh, one of my friends, Danielle has described me as like, I just drink from the fire hydrant, you know? So I want all the, like, I want to learn everything. So it's like, once I realized, oh, I was wrong about race. I thought these damaging things here, what else am I wrong about? You know, and having that curiosity, you know, which I think the church spaces I was a part of, they don't, they do not foster curiosity, no. you know, it's, it's certainty over curiosity. Right. So for me to be curious and to be like, oh, well, maybe this Bible verse that I thought meant this about women, maybe it means something different. So it was, it was that maybe this Bible verse about sexuality doesn't mean that at all. Mm-hmm. Maybe I was wrong about that, that Bible verse. And then it was like, well, maybe I'm wrong about the Bible, <laughs> you know, oh, like, yeah. you know, cause when you're taught, like, this is the inherent word of God that is God breathed. Mm-hmm. Now I sit with it as, I still think this is a valuable book. I mean, I don't read it very much anymore. I can't remember the last time I really read my Bible, but it's like, I hope to be able to get back to it one day to be able to mm-hmm. read it for what it is like Rachel Hold Evans. Uh, her book inspired was huge on my journey and my relationship with the Bible. And so, you know, she talks about loving the Bible for what it is, not what you want it to be. Mm-hmm. And so what I was taught it was, and what I thought it was learning like, Oh no, what if it's something entirely different? And can I still appreciate what it is and throw out the things that are clearly not of like, if I can look at the Bible writers as people mm-hmm. just like me in this, you know, like patriarchal culture, all these things, and they were writing about God the best way they knew how, or with the information they had or whatever to set their God apart from the quote other gods. Oh, that was a whole thing. Realizing <laughs> that the Bible writers really believed in other gods and that their God yes. was just one of I mean, <laughs> when I realized that and the amount of cultural context we are missing, that mm-hmm. was just like for me. So yeah. And honestly, Andrew, like by the time I became affirming in my theology, I didn't really need a lot of the intellectual about mm-hmm. it because I think that in my own experience, and I think you've talked about this too, maybe in that podcast episode with Haley, 
I become so disembodied and disconnected from who I mm-hmm. am. Like when, when it's drilled into you, you are wicked and deceitful. You cannot trust yourself. That's been a huge mm-hmm. thing for me to see. No, like I am sacred. I am divine. Like <laughs> I house all of these really beautiful aspects of the divinity of this great mystery. And so to see myself not as the wicked wayward sinner, you know, that I was taught Mm -hmm. that I was. So that's been a big thing to deconstruct. And then just being able to connect and have a more embodied spirituality. And so in doing that, learning to trust myself and to trust my heart and to trust the messages that I'm receiving when I'm in a good place Mm -hmm. and have been taking care of myself, you know, So that by the time I was reading some of the stuff um, in particular about sexuality and becoming affirming, I didn't need all the head stuff because my heart had changed Mm -hmm. so much that I, I finally got to a point where I could say, you know what, I might be wrong on this, but if, if there's a great judgment day where I stand Mm -hmm. before God, if I could be wrong, no matter where I land, I'd rather be wrong standing before God saying, well, I loved people. Mm -hmm. I'd rather land in love and be led by love. I love people the best I knew how, you know? Um, so yeah, I don't like there's, there's literally so much more I could say about my journey, but I think those were some of the, the biggest things, the biggest ideas that I, I wrestled with, um, to get to a point where now I know who I know that I am someone who, whatever I believe I go all in on it. Like, I just, Mm -hmm. I know that about myself. I'm learning how to have more space for nuance for someone who doesn't necessarily land where I land, but who isn't causing harm to me. I'm like, okay, you don't have to think what I think as long as you aren't hurting people with the theology you do have, you know, uh, I'm still going to speak up and call that out if you're hurting mm-hmm. people with what yes. you're saying. But if we disagree on something, I don't have to try to convince everyone. And, you know, like within that narrow Christianity I was a part of, it was all about converting people to exactly what you believe. Mm, yes. So now it's like, how do I hold space for nuance and appreciate what this person brings again, as long as it's not a racist, sexist, um, you know, homophobic, transphobic, you know, xenophobic, any of the isms or mm-hmm. phobics, you know, as long as it's not that, how do I hold space? Um, so that's kind of where I, where I am at the moment trying to wrestle with. Yeah, I think it's incredible how you were saying that, you know, if there's a judgment day and if you go before God, that you would hope that you would say, you know, well, I loved everyone I could. And I think that's so powerful because when I left, you know, Christianity, I kind of came up with my own life motto, I guess you could say. Um, And I always say humanity over dogma. Mm. Um, People matter more than these harmful, toxic beliefs. And really religion is so harmful when we choose beliefs over people. Mm-hmm. We choose beliefs over human rights. We choose beliefs over treating people with dignity and respect. And that's what I saw a lot in my church is that people chose dogma over humanity. 
and shunned and judged so many people. And, you know, my mom, she always told me growing up that you can learn two things from people, what to do and what not to do. And growing up in the IFB church, I learned what I did not want to be and what I did not want to believe. And even in college, I learned a lot of that too. And, you know, every day of my life, you know, I choose humanity over dogma, really. And I was just thinking on my walk yesterday, I'm like, it's so crazy to me how these pastors are put on pedestals and Mm -hmm. called so holy and so righteous just because they claim to submit and believe to these different doctrines, but they can be Mm -hmm. a shitty person behind the scenes and people Mm -hmm. know it, but they're still putting that pedestal just because they say, oh, well, I agree with you. It really says a lot about that system that Mm -hmm. it thrives on conformity and submission. Yes. And you are given that praise if you, Mm -hmm. you know, meet the mold because they want to encourage you to stay. They want to build you up. And the struggle is that, you know, these churches at first, they might build you up, but eventually they will tear you down That's and right. really destroy your spirit and your psyche. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. you know, and then also good for you for going to therapy. Like, <laughs> I feel like everyone needs to go to therapy and mm-hmm. it's done wonders for me as I've been in it for the last three months Yeah, and yeah. really work through just toxic teachings in the church and mm-hmm. really understanding that a lot of harmful things I believed about myself rooted was rooted in the church and mm-hmm. messages I received over and over again. So trying to, you know, deprogram myself has been a yeah. really, really hard to do mm-hmm. getting out of that environment. And, you know, for anyone out there who is struggling with negative self-talk and trauma, like obviously please get like mental health care, get therapy, you know, Mm -hmm. if it gets that serious, I highly recommend it. But, you know, I know it's really hard to take that first step to get mental Mm -hmm. health care because I've had my own experiences with getting mental health care and I was greatly disappointed with how Mm -hmm. hard it was to do it. Like it is possible, but so I'm just going to going a little bit of a rant on mental health care just for a sec for people out there just <laughs> a little bit. But um, what I want to say, it's harder because really, I know you were talking about extroverts earlier. So for introverts, it's really hard to go and call someone on the phone and ask for that help. It's hard to get mental health care because they don't make it super obvious or accessible. And for an example, with my life, when I was looking for therapy, I went to my insurance's website and I could not find anywhere that was obvious about therapy or a list of therapists who were covered mm. in my area. And I had to end up calling my insurance. I had to get my mm-hmm. insurance card and call them and talk to a person and they, and I was like, is it possible to get a list of therapists who are covered by my insurance? Like, and mm-hmm. they were like, oh, can I send it to you? And I'm like, yeah, here's my number. And it's like, I'm thinking, I'm like, we're, this is 2022 and we cannot access this information online. I have to actually call someone, wait yeah. for this. And so thankfully I've navigated through that and there are other options to find those things outside of your insurance, 
website, mm-hmm. and Psychology Today has a wonderful directory of therapists mm-hmm. where you can actually filter your insurance and different things because insurance companies couldn't do that for whatever reason. But it makes it harder. And I also had a fear around cost around therapy too. Yeah. Because in America, with our healthcare system, there's there are times when there are hidden fees or hidden costs, and you'll get a bill mm-hmm. for something, and you're like. I was not told about this. This is not told mm-hmm. up front. I didn't know it would cost this much. So I was worried about getting hidden fees or something or charged for something I didn't yeah. know about. But as I've been able to like go through therapy and get a therapist, you know, it's really having insurance is so amazing to help mm-hmm. those things. And I hope there will be a day in America when everyone can have equal access to healthcare. Yeah. Because it's so crazy to me to hear some of these conservative Republicans argue against health care for all. And mm-hmm. it's like, you know, it's like if you're really, really sick and you can't get that health care because you don't have money, like, why does that mean you deserve to die? Like, that's what I get mm-hmm. from that. If you don't have money yeah. for health care, you should just die. And that's mm-hmm. terrible. And it's like, it's so crazy because you're putting really, I guess you would say a dollar amount on someone's life. Right. Because you're like, oh, well, you can't afford this. So, oh, well, and, you know, living and being healthy shouldn't be just for those who are rich or who are able to get insurance. And Mm -hmm. I know there's so much arguments about how we would even do that, whether we you know, get the government involved with all healthcare or have a private system and then a public healthcare system both beside each other. Hopefully one day America will decide on mm-hmm. a good situation. But to say all of that, um, you know, for people who don't have insurance, therapists do also offer like a sliding scale. So they'll look at your income and what you make and they will decide on a much lower price for you if you don't have insurance. And, you know, definitely check out Psychology Today's directory because it makes it a lot easier to get the help and find that specific therapist that you need. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, as we're getting, yes, thank you. As we're going on towards the end of the show, I just want to, to give a general overview of like what were the important lessons you have learned in your journey? Mm-hmm. I would say a huge lesson I've learned is that, that about love, you know, I want to credit, um, miss Donna Powell, who sadly she passed away, um, last year. She was such, she was an older woman at the church that I was part of, and she kind of went on this journey and I got to bear witness to it. And she was the one who said, we make things so complicated but it's quite simple. Everything comes down to love. And I held on to that. And so that's really what has helped guide me through all of this. It all comes down to love. There's that. I think another thing is that telling my own story on my own terms Mm -hmm. is so empowering. And so, like I mentioned, I had written that blog post uh, on my podcast. I did a podcast episode where I gave more details than what I had done in the post. And now I'm writing a memoir and talking about how I ended up at the church and what happened at the church. And it's like, I don't know what's next for my story, but I know I'm going to keep telling it. Right. Mm -hmm. 
So that's a lesson I've learned, like tell your story. It will resonate with people like what you're doing here. Like I've listened to a couple of the uh, live Instagram lives that you had done and just how, and every time I listen, and when I listen to your episode with Haley, Mm -hmm. you know, it's not exactly the same story, but I can resonate with Mm -hmm. pieces of people's story. And so I want to give that to people too. I want them to be able to see themselves in my story and to see how I found healing so that wherever they need to find healing, Mm -hmm. they can maybe get the courage to do that. So I've learned that lesson. Um, yeah, I would say that those are my biggest things, uh, love and speaking up, you know, yes, to, to quote, yes, you, speaking to up, speak up. Uh, there's a lot of power in that and in being the one telling the story, because if you don't tell your story, someone else is going to tell your story. And so I always say to people, anyone who will listen to me, like you might not write a blog post, you might not record a podcast episode, you might not write a book, but there needs to be some way that you're telling your story and healing your story. For me, that is writing. I mean, my mm-hmm. therapist pointed that out. It really seems that writing is helping you tell your story. So, you know, um, if anyone wants to to follow me on Instagram, I'm at broadening the narrative and you can get updates on my memoir. If you're curious about my story, more about that grooming that I went through mm-hmm. that led me to the church, you know, because, you know, we can't talk about everything um, here. Yeah. I wish we could like, I'm like, okay, like tomorrow, same time. Like you want to keep this going, but I mean, um, we can make this a several part <laughs> episode if you want. Like I'm down for it's that. It's so good. It's been yeah. so good. Oh, and that's another thing. I will say this last thing. You never underestimate the power of someone feeling seen and heard, you know, when someone can sit with me and see me and what I'm saying and, and hear what I'm saying, not trying to fix it. Mm-hmm. not diminishing, not providing an excuse, just, just listening. Mm-hmm. That's powerful. And so I want to be that for people. Um, and you know, you're creating that for people here and it's just, don't underestimate, you know, I've just learned that the power of someone feeling seen and heard. Oh yes. It really is so powerful. And that is a really big reason to why I became really active on social media and mm-hmm. started this show because you know, back in January of this year, I was given the opportunity to be seen and to be heard by um, Josh Harris. I was on his Instagram live show. And, you know, I'm sure you know about me getting kicked out of Bob Jones. And that yeah, I heard in the episode it. with Haley. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, because of that interview I did with Josh, I was kicked out, but it has greatly changed my life. And has brought so many wonderful um, opportunities for me. I've been able to really, number one, be true to myself. And number Mm -hmm. two, to be able to help other people through my story because being and experiencing, like I never ever felt heard or even understood or seen throughout my entire life. So to have Mm -hmm. Joshua Harris sit down with me and listen was so powerful for me. And then after that, I'm like, I really want to give this opportunity to anyone and everyone who wants to share their story because it is powerful to speak up, Mm -hmm. to feel seen, to be heard, because it makes us feel like number one, we matter. And number Mm -hmm. two, what we went through mattered. And number three, that it wasn't okay and it shouldn't happen. And that part, yep. Wasn't okay and it shouldn't have happened. Yep. Shouldn't have happened. And, you know, speaking up is so important because any social change that has really happened is when a bunch of people band together and speak Mm -hmm. up and demand change 
because sadly, sadly, it had to happen. It all it really has to happen a lot mm -hmm. that way. Like George Floyd, for example, people had mm -hmm. to really get loud and angry mm -hmm. to actually try to change some legislation mm -hmm. in our country around the police force. And they did it mm -hmm. so quickly because people demanded it. So that's an example, you know, in civil rights where that happened. And so for me, I want to help as many people as possible to mm -hmm. speak up because I am so tired of these abusive church leaders yes. dim diminishing all of us really and generalizing mm -hmm. us and saying awful things. And, you know, I think it's great to tell your own story because, mm -hmm. you know, you have every right to tell your story. Like if people didn't want you to be honest about your story and about what they did to you, they should have treated you better because <laughs> you have a right to be honest and to tell your story. And, mm -hmm. you know, sadly, a lot of these people, they don't want to deal with these issues with the church or issues with themselves. Mm -hmm. So they go to victim blaming and they yeah. slander people. And, you know, that's definitely happened to me. And I know a lot of people who have left these mm -hmm. situations, but we're telling our stories and they can't silence us. Like they can say mm -hmm. all the nasty things they want to, but we're going to keep telling our stories mm -hmm. and speaking up. And so, you know, my last question would be, what advice do you have for people who are stuck in these toxic religions? Leave. And it's okay to leave. Mm -hmm. Like you don't need my permission, but I'm giving you permission to leave. <laughs> and I think so much of why we stay is because we think we can quote, be the change we want to see. Yeah. You, and I just want to say that while that is somewhat admirable, I think I've seen another part of that is pretty prideful. Like if they haven't listened to everyone before you, mm -hmm. what makes you think they're going to listen to you? So for us, there have been people before us, but we still thought, I still thought like if he just, you know, and it's like, I thought I had some superpower. <laughs> I don't, <laughs> I do not. <laughs> and he didn't listen to me. And then there are people who stayed after us who kept saying, well, we just, we want to stay so we can be part of the change we want to see. And I, I just want to offer the advice that it's not worth it to stay somewhere that doesn't value you. It's, it's really not worth it. And there is so much freedom and flourishing and wholeness on the other side. And there is community. You just have to find it, you know? Um, and so that would be my advice. Like in short, it's okay to leave. It is okay to leave. Oh, yes, most definitely. And like, you know, I've had a person criticize me uh, for leaving and they were like, why didn't you just stay in and try to change the system? They're like, why are you just now leaving the castle and throwing rocks at the castle? And I didn't answer this person because it was a very emotional conversation. I was close and I really mm -hmm. thought about it later and I was like, you know what? Because the castle doesn't want to change. <laughs> and what's a rock going to do to a castle? Yes, what is a rock going to do to a castle? Yeah. So... You got to take a catapult and yeah. put some boulders into that yes. thing because we got to tear the system down and yes. rebuild it. Okay. Without hierarchy. <laughs> yes. And so, you know, I thought about that later. I was like, you know what? It's like, number one, it doesn't even want to change. And it's mm -hmm. only going to be when we get all these other people 
getting involved and speaking up and demanding this change. And number two, like, you know, protect your mental health. If your environment is destroying your mental health and you feel shame about leaving, your mental health is so much more important. Please, please value yourself. Take care of yourself. It's okay. And, you know, for me, like a lot in my life has changed and basically like I was expelled from school, um, my home life, I went to a new situation. So everything in my life changed and I basically just ran on the running track to like activism and telling my story and trying to do change. And not everyone has to do that. Like for me, I was at a point in my life where I had worked through a lot of my issues that I was mentally healthy enough to go into activism and to tell my story. And, you know, for people out there who want to get involved in this kind of work and activism, definitely take your mental health into account because activism Mm -hmm. can be mentally tolling and it can be discouraging and hard Mm -hmm. to really hear all these different stories and different things. So take your time to heal and, you know, work on your story with yourself. And, you know, only you know when you're ready to tell your story and really connect with yourself too, because these religions really disconnect us from ourselves. Mm-hmm. And yeah. you know, before we end, I want to thank Nikki for coming on the podcast. I have really enjoyed this. Um, like so I said, welcome. oh, that's great. And like, I really need to give your podcast um, a listen to because now I'm interested mm-hmm. in it, and I cannot wait for your book. Do you know when it's going to be published? So I'm doing the self-publishing route. And so I, I'm actually supposed to be talking with at 11 o'clock, a, uh, someone who I'm doing this writing circle. And then I'm going to talk with her after the writing circle, who's a writing coach to -hmm. see if she can kind of help guide me more in the process. So the book is basically done. I just need to try to find a publisher. Um, I'm currently like this month, like of April, Mm -hmm. um, I was trying to raise the funds via a Kickstarter. If you've heard of Kickstarter, Mm -hmm. um, to be able to get people to pre-order the book. Cause you know, pre-orders help a book be successful, you know, if people can Mm -hmm. see like, Oh, this is a book people want and are interested Mm -hmm. in. So that's where I am in the process, like where I have the completed manuscript and I'm going to be talking with a writing coach today. Oh, that's Um, so exciting. Yeah, it is exciting. Um, and yeah, I mean, in my journey, like I want to shout out Tina Strawn. She's a queer black woman Mm -hmm. and she has been so instrumental on my journey uh, and Letty Shoemate, who is a black woman and a historian in North Carolina. So, you know, we're oh. in South Carolina, she's in Wilmington, North Carolina. And I just, oh, wow. she is doing such good work to shine light on the history, but connect it to the present. And so if you want to hear a historian who she knows what she's talking about, like Letty Shoemate, she's at Sincerely Letty. So, um, and then Tina Strawn is at Tina Strawn Life. And she has a book coming out about mm. divorcing America as a queer black woman. Uh, uh, I might be messing up the title, but you know, cause she has left the United mm-hmm. States. She's living in Costa Rica right now, I believe. And mm. just the freedom anyway. So I wanted to shout those. I mean, there's, there's so many more people I could say, but I really want to say something about those two people. All right. So, yeah. Awesome. Sounds good. Thank you, Nikki for All coming right, thank on. Thank you, Andrew. This is so great. Oh yes. And it I was link- a delight. Oh yes. I'll link your socials in the description so people can follow your work and your book. It was so great hearing your story. And this was Speaking Up with Andrew Fledger. This podcast is distributed by Anchor from Spotify. It's the easiest way to make a podcast. 
Everything you need is in one space. Anchor has the tools to record, edit, and distribute your podcast. And it's all free. Download the Anchor app or go to Anchor FM to start creating your own podcast today. Thank you for listening to Speaking Up with Andrew Pledger. Please support the show by sharing, donating, or leaving a review. Your support is much appreciated.